My warning for today's case is it involves many mentions of sexual assault. I'm Haley. I'm Andy. And this is Dead Endings. Are you ready to be pissed the fuck off? <laughs> oh, I love it when you piss me off, Haley. Let's go. So it was very difficult to decide what order I wanted to share all of these events and all of this information. Um, this case is very complicated because the murder essentially became a psychology case study and is often referenced in passing when getting into like other psychology type topics. Like it's like this happened and these studies came from it. I love that. So that's how I first came across it in my freshman year of college, and it's presented just with the brief information, and then it gets into the studies that were inspired by this event. Then when I decided to do an episode on it and research it more deeply, I like looked into it a little bit before, all of these other events and information just spilled out. It's very important to me that the main focus of the episode be on the victim first, and then the philosophical and societal issues next, and then just the necessary basics of the killer like fuck them yeah obviously but as part of the story sometimes it's important to be like there's this little bit of them so this is a case where it's very easy to lose the victim in but i want to present the basic synopsis that i had when i first heard about this case and then share a little bit more about the studies and after that i will backtrack into who the victim was and the events that unfolded because i felt like if i started with the victim and then moved on to other stuff it would be kind of like forgetting her you know what i mean okay so i want to go over like a little bit and then get into her in detail all right essentially recreating the process that i went through while learning about this case in many psychology sociology and criminology courses at some point the murder of kitty genovese comes up this is the information that i first had about the case It occurred in the early morning hours of March 13th, 1964. She was walking home when she was attacked on the streets of Queens, New York. She was stabbed. She screamed out. Lights came on all over in the apartment building across the street. People inside looked out, opened windows, yelled, and some watched as Kitty was stabbed as the attacker ran away and as Kitty stood up and stumbled down the street. She had cried out that she was stabbed when it was happening. Kitty made it around the corner and into the hallway of an apartment building, and she called out to a friend she knew who lived right up the flight of stairs. She was out of sight of the original witnesses, but they saw the attacker come back and follow the path that Kitty had taken, and some heard more screams as the man found Kitty injured in the hallway, and in a second attack that was also witnessed by some apartment residents, Kitty was stabbed repeatedly, had her throat cut, and was sexually assaulted before the attacker fled. I, I think I know which case this, like, which this, where familiar. this is going. Yeah. But holy so, shit. Eventually, someone called the police. Kitty was alive when first responders arrived, but was pronounced dead at, upon arrival when she got to the hospital. In all, 38 people admitted to seeing or hearing the attack, and none of them did anything. Yep. Either not wanting to be involved or believing that someone else would call the police or convincing themselves that it was nothing more than a fight between boyfriend and girlfriend and that nothing bad was happening. Many people all over the nation were horrified when the story broke out about all the witnesses who did nothing to help the woman crying out that she was dying and screaming for help. Because 38 fucking people. That's a lot. 
psychologists created experiments and studies to try to measure apathy that humans feel towards one another and determine under what circumstances people are more or less likely to help others. For example, a study was done where students were told they'd be working with someone over an intercom in a different room, and during the work, that person that they can't see but they can hear seems to start having a seizure. If the student was alone in their own room, the majority of them call for help. But for every student in the room with them, they are less and less likely to seek help for their unseen peer. <laughs> so in a bizarre set of circumstances, the murder of Kitty Genovese became all about these witnesses and not about Kitty. And also not about the person who was responsible for her murder. Not that it should be about him, but it's almost like the nation enjoyed blaming the witnesses for her death more than the man who caused it. Which... The witnesses were shitty, but it was very bizarre. Like, the witnesses took so much more of the blame than the man himself. Yeah, I mean, it, thankfully the man was found and found guilty, right? Like, he didn't get away with it? No. Alright, good. Fuck that guy. Not so, literally. like I said, I had Googled a little bit here and there, and I felt like I knew the solid basics, but when I dove into this, there's so much more than I could have imagined or prepared for. Mainly my goal was to humanize Kitty Genovese for myself because I struggle to imagine her as anything other than this generic woman from like an old black and white film being attacked. And she just didn't seem real to me before, but she definitely does now. Now, and most of all, I want to tell you about Kitty Genovese. Yeah. And I think that you will probably think of Kitty Genovese for the rest of your life. I love the name. Yes. <laughs> So Catherine Susan Genovese was born on July 7th in 1935. This was between both the world wars and right in the middle of the Great Depression. She was the first child born to her parents, Rachel and Vincent Genovese, but she always went by Kitty. Mm -hmm. And just a few years after Kitty and her, after they had Kitty, her parents had another child they named Vincent. Eventually, Kitty and Vincent would be followed by three more younger siblings, Frank, William, and Susan. But there was almost a decade gap between Kitty and the younger three. Kitty seems to have found the perfect balance between being the well-behaved, helpful kid and a fun little mischievous rebel. <laughs> she was very close with her mother and they had a loving relationship. Kitty often helped her mom with her younger siblings and her siblings said that Kitty was like their second mom. Kitty grew up spending a lot of time playing outside with the other kids, but they lived in Brooklyn, New York, so it's not like they were playing in backyards or parks. They were often on stoops and sidewalks playing cards or dolls. Kitty would run errands to the corner store, and she had brown hair and these deep brown eyes, and as she got older, I think she looks magical. <laughs> I really I'm excited. like Kitty. Her family was very Italian on both sides and Catholic. She grew up in the church, but it didn't really seem to stick with her at all. It was just a part of life that she did as a child, and her father owned an apron and towel supply company. She had a very chill childhood, and she grew into a confident and outgoing teenager. She attended an all-girls school and did very well. She did her work, and she understood it, and she was very smart. But she didn't join any clubs or take part in any sports, and never really seemed to worry about what she was going to do with her future. She would spend her free time in dance halls and loved dancing to Latin music. Her classmates from the time said that Kitty was always moving or doing something, and she was silly and loved to make people laugh. She was loud and would burst out singing in the hallways. On breaks during school, she and classmates would be up on the, like, roof break area smoking cigarettes, and Kitty would be doing little stand-up routines. 
There were 3,500 students in her school and 600 students in her graduating class, and she was voted class cut-up, which would just be class clown. Oh, okay. But they also said that she was very respectful and kind to everybody. That's awesome. Like, she when you was can... funny, but she didn't make other people, like, the butt of the joke. That's nice. That's a true comedian. <laughs> and honestly, Kitty just seems like who you hope your daughter would grow up to be. Just this very happy and confident person who's kind to the people around her. I really like Kitty. Uh, she would always make it home in time before her curfew, but occasionally she and other girls would cut class and take the train into Manhattan for the day. Watching shows and running around, Kitty said she felt free in New York City and loved it there. During her high school days, she became a bit infatuated with Greenwich Village area of Manhattan. There were a lot of clubs and beatniks in the area, and their lifestyle really struck a note with Kitty. And beatniks would be to the 50s essentially what hippies were to the 60s and 70s. The term comes mostly from the specific style of poetry, but it's like if you imagine people wearing dark clothes and sunglasses and like berets and like turtlenecks and being <laughs> very like cool. Artsy. <laughs> yeah. They were just a subculture of youth expressing themselves. <laughs> Kitty graduated in 1953, and not long after, she got engaged to an army cadet who she met at a dance hall. The pair married in the fall of 1954, but their marriage was very short-lived, so they got married in the fall. Their marriage was annulled and over by Christmas. Who? Kitty never spoke about the failed marriage, and most people in her life later on didn't even know that she'd been married before. <laughs> She's like, it was a phase. <laughs> I don't think she gave any friends or family at the time a reason why the marriage failed, but a pretty solid reason presents itself soon enough. Okay. When she was about 19 years old, her family moved from New York City, where both of her parents had grown up, as well to a smaller, safer community in Connecticut. Her mother had witnessed a violent murder in their neighborhood, which had previously been a pretty safe place, and the parents decided they wanted to finish raising their younger children somewhere quieter. Smart. At first, Kitty went with, but she was very unhappy and very bored in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Not long after, Kitty moved back to New York City on her own. She would drive back every weekend to visit her family and hang out with her kid siblings. That's so sweet of her. Kitty tried out a few different jobs, but soon took to being a barmaid, which was just being a bartender. Yep. She loved it, and she was great at it. She loved being outgoing and connecting with people and being social. She was also very caring. When people told her things that they were going through or things just about them, she remembered. I bet she made bank. She was also very smart. One woman said that anytime her son had homework, especially history homework, and needed help, she would send him to the bar to talk to Kitty. <laughs> That's awesome. Isn't that just lovely? <laughs> She's like, I don't know how to do this. Go to the bar, kid. <laughs> Kitty's got it. Kitty's got it. Yeah, she supposedly was very just good at her job. She worked at a few different establishments. At one point in 1961, though, Kitty was arrested because she was taking bets from patrons and working the phone for a bookmaker because she was fun. <laughs> but gambling, like, was, gambling was Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and gambling charges were so common at the time that there was a specific gambler's court set aside literally to only deal with Not even just regular, there's just gambling court. Oh my gosh. Did she get like, what is it, like acquitted? So Kitty was represented by a lawyer named Sydney Sparrow who was able to get her a plea deal which only had her paying some fines instead of getting jail time. Nice. Kitty also really liked the horse races herself. Like she was, she's cool. That sounds awesome. 
Kitty eventually settled into a job at a bar called Ev's 11th Hour. This was a great spot for her, and the owner, Evelyn, had started off her career as a barmaid at another place down the street, and she eventually saved enough to open her own establishment. And a female bar owner in the early 60s was rare. rare. Yeah. So Kitty definitely looked up to Evelyn and was inspired by her. Evelyn had promoted Kitty to the position of bar manager because she was responsible and good at her job and good with people. Kitty was only five foot two and a hundred pounds, but she could be tough with people. Like when she needed to cut them off, they would listen to her. Yeah. I think seeing a woman in that position, like I said, was very inspiring to Kitty because she would later say that she wanted to own her own bar one day too. In 1963, Kitty had recently gotten out of an abusive controlling relationship. She was at a club when she saw someone who caught her eye. Being the outgoing, awesome human she was, she walked right up to Marianne Zelanko and started chatting. Ooh. After a bit, Kitty told Marianne that she really wanted to call her sometime, but Marianne told Kitty that she didn't have a phone. <laughs> a few days later, Marianne found a note on her door from Kitty saying she would call her at the corner payphone at a specified time. The two moved into their own apartment together just a few weeks into the relationship. They found a one-room apartment in the neighborhood of Kew Gardens in Queens, which was a relatively safe middle-class neighborhood. And that year for Christmas, Kitty got Marion a dog they named Andrew. Oh, It was like a little poodle. That's so cute. I like this love story. I know. <laughs> Kitty asked Mary Ann if she wanted to always work as a teletype, which is what she'd been doing. And Marianne told her no, but that she didn't really have a direction. She wasn't sure what she wanted to do. So Kitty encouraged Marianne to try new things and was able to get her a job working as a barmaid. Kitty talked about how if Marianne liked it, maybe they could open a bar together someday. Marianne began taking art classes across the street from their apartment in another building building called the Mowbray. They worked opposite shifts and Marianne would work in the mornings throughout the day and then Kitty would work in the evenings and they would spend their free time together. Life seemed to be going really, really well and Kitty was proud of her ability to support herself and she also helped out friends and acquaintances whenever she saw they needed it. And she would often say that she didn't need a man to support her because people would be like, when are you going to settle down? They presented as they were roommates. It's the early 60s. Right. This is me and my roommates. I feel like, when are you going to settle down and get a man? She's like, I don't need a man to support me. <laughs> my roommate's really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, she pays all her bills right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> She's like really emotionally intelligent and like supportive and like takes care of my needs. It's crazy. <laughs> On Thursday, March 12th, Kitty and Marianne happened to have their own plans. Mary went out bowling with another friend. After Kitty's shift, she'd made plans to have dinner and some drinks with a friend of theirs as well. Kitty was going to be having just a few drinks at Ebb's, and then she was going to stay the night at her friend's apartment, who lived above the bar. Kitty was then going to be opening the bar the next morning, so it just was, I'm going to hang out here, I'm going to have a few drinks, I'm going to sleep, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to start my day. Yeah. So the evening went as planned. Marianne made it home, and knowing that Kitty was going to be staying the night at her friend's house, she went to sleep. Kitty hung out and chatted with people at the bar for a little bit. She had a few drinks, but definitely wasn't drunk. Kitty decided that she wanted to make the drive home instead of staying the night with her friend. No one really knows why. I think maybe she wanted to see Marianne. Maybe she wanted the chance to decompress and sleep in her own bed a bit before starting another day. But Kitty said goodbye to her co-workers and friends at Ev's and walked out to where her car was parked on the street. It was a red sports car that she would drive. It was very cute. This lady made bank. Kitty obviously wasn't aware that a man had been driving around the area for a few hours by the time, by that time, looking for a potential victim. He saw Kitty get into her car and he followed her driving behind at a distance. 
He followed a sheep hold into the parking lot by the train tracks behind the Tudor building where Kitty lived. He sat in his car and waited for her to get out of her own. After a second, she did, and he could see for certain that she was alone. He got out of his car. Kitty started walking towards the building, and she noticed the man standing in the dark watching her and began to walk faster, because Kitty is fucking smart, too. Yep. She's, like, very aware of her surroundings. She sees a dude, and she's like, mm, this isn't sitting well with me. I'm gonna speed up. Well, when you are a bartender, you have to be aware, but also when you're in, a woman. Yeah, she, <laughs> and she grew up in New York City. Yep. So then he started speeding up his pace, and she took off running for the main road. Like, she didn't even be like, oh, maybe he's just trying to, she was like, no, Don't give him excuses. And Shut up. as soon as she got to the corner in front of the tutor in the main road, she started screaming for help. She made it around the corner. She was still screaming, and she was trying to open doors of the businesses along the street. But at this point, it was a little after 3 a.m., and all the stores were closed and locked. He eventually caught up with her, and he stabbed her from behind in the back. Kitty fell to the ground, yelling that she'd been stabbed, yelling for help, and the man continued to stab her. Lights started coming on across the street in the building of the Mowbray, and a man yelled out from the window to leave that girl alone. Okay, Some but people like... yelled to shut the fuck up. Another yelled asking what's going on down there. The attacker seemed unfazed at first, but as more windows and lights were opening and turning on, he ran off. Apartment residents watched as Kitty slowly stood up and picked up something off the ground. We believe it was her wallet. As she started to slowly make her way back down the street, she was bleeding, she was probably in shock, but she was less than a minute from her own apartment, and I think her goal was to get back into the building where she could feel safe. Yep. After she rounded the corner, she went into one of the entrances. It was a hallway with a staircase that led up to two apartments, one of which belonged to Carl Ross. Carl was a friend of Kitty. He was a closeted gay man, and Kitty knew that. Carl knew about Kitty and Marianne, and they found comfort in being able to be who they were around each other, so they would hang out, and they could just be out with each other. Kitty collapsed into the hallway and began to yell up the stairs for Carl, screaming for him to help and identifying herself, saying, It's me, it's Kitty. Carl is a fucking piece of shit. Coward. I fucking hate Carl. So Carl called a friend of his who lived outside of New York City and asked what he should do and that there was a woman screaming in the hallway for him to help You her. don't call your friend, you call 911. And 911 didn't exist. Oh, oh, okay, well, still, you call whatever, like... You call the operator and yeah. the police. So his friend told him to call the police. Good for the friend. Did Carl do that? He didn't. No. Oh my gosh, Carl. So as this is happening... People are still standing at their windows in the Mowbray, Mowbray, and they saw the man come back. They watched him as he slowly walked down the street, looking in doorways of the businesses. He made his way around the same corner that Kitty had gone down, and in the second doorway he checked, he found Kitty. She looked at him, they made eye contact, and she began screaming, and he started attacking her again. He stabbed her in the throat, and he said he did this to stop her screaming. Some of the people in the apartment across the street said that they heard the last few screams. So people in the Mowbray across the street could supposedly hear the screams. So she, she's just screaming her freaking head off and nobody's helping so her. Carl Ross most certainly heard her screams. Yup. The man continued to attack Kitty and stab her. He cut off her undergarments and saw that she was wearing like cushion in her bra to add some curve. And this supposedly angered him. So, um, he 
then did something that you find out is part of his routine, and I don't... I didn't like the way some sources phrased it. He assaulted Kitty sexually using his mouth. Ugh. He was not erect, but he laid on top of her body as she was still clinging to life, and he was able to reach his own sexual completion because he's fucking gross. Um, While this assault was going on, the attacker later said he could hear one of the apartment doors at the top of the stairs open and close a few times, but he for some reason felt confident that no one was going to come down and stop him. I really hope that Kitty didn't hear the door opening and closing, and I hope that she didn't spend the last few moments of her life knowing that a man she thought was her friend was a fucking coward because he was opening and either peeking out or trying to listen more closely to what was going on. Carl Ross knew exactly what was happening at the bottom of the stairs, and he didn't do shit to stop it, and he gets worse still somehow. I feel like he should be an accomplice to the murder at this point, honestly. Like, yes, he wasn't a murderer, but, like, dude, you... Like, you were, you were, you you were watching. Yeah. This is a detail that supposedly, it said that the ME didn't, like, cite this as being present in her autopsy, but the attacker says that he did this, and honestly, the attacker has not lied about other details. They've been very honest. Um, and this is a hard detail, but I want to clarify, like, the fucking horror that Kitty experienced. He said that he inserted the knife into her genitals and then was going to cut upward but her pubic bone stopped oh and kitty is alive yep yep wow the attacker fled carl ross in between calls to his friends and peeking out the door at what kitty was going through climbed out of his window, ran across the roof to the other side of the building, climbed down part of the fire escape, and began pounding on the window of another tenant. That woman came to the window, and Carl told her that a woman was lying in his hallway screaming that she was Kitty, but he wasn't sure if it was Kitty, and he wanted the woman to call Kitty's neighbor Greta to see if it really was Kitty. How about you just call the fucking operator? Greta was called and asked to go down and see if it was Kitty. Greta was an elderly fucking woman in her 70s. So Uh. Carl Ross requested that an elderly fucking woman go into the scene to see if it was actually Kitty. Because he's just such a he fucking pussy. He couldn't step pussy. out his fucking door and look. He couldn't grab something like a lamp in his apartment and, like, help it, like, his bash. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Nope, I'm gonna send an elderly woman to go check on her. I fucking hate Carl Ross. So Greta, bless her fucking heart, heads down there. She doesn't, she hasn't heard any of the screaming. She didn't, like, wake well, up to that. Because she's elderly, yeah. She didn't, she didn't know what was going on. She just knows that supposedly there's... Been an attack. Kitty's lying, she doesn't even know there's been an attack. She oh. just thinks Kitty's lying in the hallway yelling, so she's like, maybe it's Kitty and Kitty's drunk. So she goes to see if it's Kitty. She sees Kitty laying on the ground, exposed, because Kitty's clothes have been cut open and injured, and she knows something is very very wrong so Greta runs back to her own apartment and she calls another neighbor named Sophia Farrar she tells Sophia that Kitty is laying in that hallway and needs help so Sophia bless her fucking heart as well she's a mom to small kids she has no idea what's going on either but she goes out to check on Kitty as well she finds Kitty laying there and immediately starts trying to ask her what happened. She cradles Kitty's head on her lap and she realizes there's blood all over her. And at this point, fucking Carl decides to wander back out to see what's going on now that the mom of small children and the other elderly lady are there to protect He's him. He's like, I'm not a target. So Kitty wasn't able to talk. She couldn't do anything beyond gurgle and moan. Her lungs had been punctured too. And then Carl decides to call the police. 
That's oh, then finally Thanks, somebody. Carl. No, I want him to be charged. <laughs> so an officer arrived at 3.52 a.m. thinking he was responding to an assault. He saw the scene and immediately called for backup. Two more officers arrived at 4.05 a.m. and radioed for homicide, which arrived at 4.20 a.m., with the ambulance arriving five minutes later. Kitty was unconscious, but still alive. The ambulance drove her to Queens General Hospital, where she was pronounced dead on arrival and then immediately transported to the morgue. Kitty had died en route to the hospital. She was 28 years old. But she didn't need, like, she genuinely, she didn't need to die. Like, if there were more people, not even, not necessarily more people, because fucking 38 people heard, but if there were people who actually called. It gets worse. Oh my gosh. You're not lying when you said it never stops getting worse. Oh my gosh. Neighbors had started coming out when police and the ambulance arrived to see what was going on because fuck them, they couldn't come out before that, but they want to see what's happening now. I feel like if at least two neighbors would have come out, he wouldn't have come back to finish her off. He would have, like, ugh. Some detectives went to Kitty's apartment to break the news to who they thought was her roommate and try to get some information. Marianne was awoken in the early morning hours by police telling her that Kitty had been murdered. Marianne was obviously devastated, and then she's being faced with the task of finding a balance between how much emotion to show and trying to decide with how open she should be with the police about her relationship with Kitty. Because she... She doesn't necessarily want to out herself. They think it's just... They think that they're just roommates. Right. But she wants to know who killed Kitty, and this is an important detail of their lives. Because that's the woman that she loves. And it's just hard. Marianne tried to call into her place of work that day to tell them she wouldn't be in. And she was told that if she didn't show up, she wouldn't have a job. Because, again, in their mind, it was her roommate that got murdered, which is a good enough reason to call in. Yeah. But, so Marianne lost her job. Yup, good for And Marianne was also taken to the morgue to identify Kitty's body. Because everybody in their mind thinks right now that it's just her roommate helping out. They don't understand that it's, it's her partner of her life. Yep. Marianne was only 25 years old going through this. Oh. Kitty's siblings woke up on Friday, March 13th in New Canaan, Connecticut to the sound of their mother's screams as an officer at the door told her that her oldest daughter had been killed. Her mother, Rachel, had to be sedated at one point during the day just to get a little bit of relief. The family was completely devastated. The siblings said that Kitty had always made them feel seen and heard, which, like, hits me of just, like, that's such an important thing for kids. To, like, have an older sibling or just an adult in their life that makes them feel seen and heard. For somebody to just have that kind of validating personality is, like, she's a freaking angel. And because police need a family to confirm identification, they had to ask someone in the family to come see Kitty's body. Her father, Vincent, asked his brother, Kitty's uncle, to do so. And Kitty's uncle did so so that her parents wouldn't have to. He's a good brother and a good uncle. Detectives canvassed the area and spoke with residents from the apartment buildings. The next day, a reporter from the New York Times came and canvassed the area as well and spoke with residents who were very candid and open. The residents of the apartment within the first few days had no idea what was coming their way of, like, the criticism they were facing. Yeah. So a lot of them made many comments that, uh... They didn't make the call because they had assumed somebody else would call. Yeah, so many, many people saw or at least heard the attack that night, and some thought they were just seeing a lover's quarrel because it looked like to them that he was, like, punching her. But she, okay, but even if you still do something. If you're being, yeah, like. I don't uh, care that it's the early 60s. If you see a man punching his girlfriend on the street, do something. Yeah, exactly, because, oh, ooh. Which, don't mind your own business. 
If there's any crime happening. Some thought it was just a drunk person from the bar losing their shit outside. Some knew it was attack, and some just didn't care. Some thought about calling the police, and some just went back to bed. In some cases, people opened their mouths to explain why they didn't help, and they just became even shittier people in the process. I just hit the microphone because I'm talking. <laughs> but with my hands really aggressively. So, yeah, they go to, like, explain their reasoning, and it's like, oh, sir, you, you should can, stop yeah, yeah. talking. <laughs> You're literally somehow making yourself a worse person by talking and explaining why you decided to be a shitty person to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I heard her scream, but, uh... Okay. no, are you ready for this? Oh, no, I'm not, but let's go! One man <laughs> told the New York Times reporter that he didn't know that a girl was being killed. If he had known, he would have called the police. What did he think was happening? He thought a girl was just getting raped. And given the time of morning, with it being 3 a.m. something, well, she was getting what she deserved having been out alone at that time. That man, oh my god. How the fuck, I don't care what year it is, how do those words comfortably come out of your mouth as a reason? I didn't, if I knew that she was getting murdered, I would have totally called the police. I thought she was just getting raped and deserved it. Yeah, what? What and What the fuck later, kind of logic is that? And then later, like, they explained to him, not that this excuses it at all, she can be out at whatever fucking time she wants, but, like, they were explaining to him, like, she works at a bar, like, sometimes she closes, he's like, yeah, that's hard to be, like, a working woman in those situations, he's like, I don't know what she would, what she's supposed to do in that. So it's like, he almost comprehended empathy, but he just was deciding not to use it. And that man never got laid after that statement again, I, like, I, I hope. I, I just hope that he never got to experience joy for the rest of his life. Like, I hope it was a really, really long, drawn-out process, you know? Yeah. No, I, I wish I wish the worst for this dude. And I want him to know it's because of that comment that he made. Ugh. Some people said they just didn't want to get involved. A literal quote attributed to our piece-of-shit friend Carl. Can you guess where Carl fucking was when police arrived and Kitty's body was taken away? Was he at home? Nope. Carl was in Kitty's fucking apartment, pretending to comfort Marianne, who had no idea that Kitty had run to fucking Carl for help and that this man literally did nothing to help her. Did Marianne eventually find out? Okay, yes. good. I think that Carl was trying to be there for Marianne as a way to alleviate his own conscience. But you know what would be a great way to alleviate your own conscience? Doing the right thing at to the begin beginning. With? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he ended up getting arrested that morning for fighting with the police because the police tried to tell him that they wanted to talk to Marianne alone and that he needed to leave. And the detective got a vibe right away that Carl was a garbage person. <laughs> and they were pretty sure that he had seen way more than he was admitting to see. So they, I think the police were like, what the fuck are you doing trying to comfort this person when we're pretty sure you watched this happen and did nothing? The elevator operator of the Mowbray didn't want to talk to the police at first, didn't even want to tell them his name. He actually got dragged in for questioning, and they eventually got out of him that his name was Joseph Fink. They also found out that he saw the whole attack from his post across the street. He saw Kitty running down the street. He saw her attacker catch up to her and stab her. And what he did in response was to go downstairs to the basement and have a sandwich and wait for whatever was happening upstairs to be over with. So fuck you too, Joseph Fink. How can you eat after that? How can you distract yourself? I don't... I don't get it. One woman said she saw the attack and that she called the operator, got the police, and the police answered, and she immediately hung up because she was afraid. Afraid of what? Who fucking knows? 
There was a young teen boy and his father who said they saw the attack. The teen boy said that before he knew what was going on, he had been the one to yell out his window to shut the fuck up because he had just woken up and heard commotion. So he was like, shut up. Like, I'm trying to sleep. I can understand how a teenage boy would do that, but it's still like... So then he watched and he saw that Kitty was being assaulted, but they weren't sure to what degree. And his dad came in and they watched and then they called the police. So they did. They told the police that an assault was going on and that they had seen Kitty walk off in one direction and that the attacker ran in another direction. So the police noted that an assault had happened, but they didn't prioritize it. They're like, huh, this assault happened. Because they took it as a domestic assault that happened and it was something that they were going to need to check up on, but not like immediately respond to. I do believe that they called the police. This teenage boy actually grew up to become a police officer in New York himself. Oh, that's really neat. The man who had yelled to leave the girl alone said that he grabbed the phone to call the police, but his wife told him not to. She said that they didn't know what was going on, and besides, she figured the police had already gotten about 20 calls by then. He said that he then grabbed his jacket and wanted to go down there to check on her, but his wife didn't want him to leave because the woman had been yelling that she was stabbed, and she said that meant there was an armed man out there and stopped her husband, which is like, okay, so no, you did know what was going on. You can't sit there and be like, no, don't call because we don't know what's going on and we need to mind our own business. Yeah. And I'm also just like, I hope that that ruined your marriage. Um, his wife's reaction is the perfect example of what was found in the psychological studies done with, like, bystanders and witnesses, that many people don't react because they don't want to be the one who's seen as being overdramatic, and they assume that other people will help or have already helped. No, screw that. I'll be dramatic. Like, wh- yeah. I don't... Who gives a fuck about what other people think? And, like, if it matters... It matters about that person's safety. I, yeah. I hope he divorced her and that she, like, lived the rest of her life alone. I hope so, too. I understand being afraid for your partner, but, like, you could have called the police. Well, I kind of... You could have... You're telling me that none of you had something to use as a weapon to swing at this person? Yeah. That, but I also, like, I relate it to kind of, if this was a situation at a party and, like, you saw a girl who was about to be assaulted sexually, that girl wouldn't stand up for the other girl and she would make sure that her partner didn't stand up for them either. Yeah. And it's, like, that's so infuriating. That, because, I how are we? just, this is a cowardly man who's attacking a small-statured woman in the dark. If two people had gone out to help her, he's not going to come back. He wouldn't have come back. He's a shit coward. Yes. So, uh, Marianne decided to be honest with police about her relationship with Kitty, but the police had already figured out that detail on their own from talking to others who knew them and other people suspected. The police don't seem to have treated the case any differently and did everything they could to find Kitty's killer, which That's is, like, nice. amazing. It seems like they did a good job of, like, continuing to keep her sexuality on the down low so that they weren't, like, outing Kitty after her death and they weren't outing Marianne. This is very cool considering the time. Good job, officers. The story of Kitty's murder, which was only one in about 500-some that happened that year in New York City, became a huge news story once it started to be reported that many people had witnessed her murder and done nothing. Police were able to determine from witnesses, though, that they were looking for a smaller, thin man driving a white Chevrolet Corvair. Less than a week after Kitty's death, police responded to a bizarre call about a home robbery that was taking place in the middle of the day before noon. The neighbors had called because they'd seen a man carrying things out of their neighbor's home and asked him what he was doing. The man told them that he was helping his friends move. 
the neighbors called other neighbors and they were like, hey, are these people moving? And they were like, no, they're not moving. <laughs> so they called the police and they also went out to the man's white Chevrolet Corvair and removed the distributor cap from his car so that it wouldn't start. Oh, smart. So when the man tried to start the car and it wouldn't, he just calmly got out and walked off down the street, leaving all of the shit that he had stolen from the house just in the car. <gasps> that doesn't scream guilty at all. The police found the man nearby based on his description and confirmed it was his car and they brought him in for questioning. The man was very calm, very chill, and very forthcoming, admitting that he had robbed two homes already that morning. And it wasn't <laughs> even lunchtime. He's like, I'm on a roll. He described other home invasions he'd committed. They established that he and his wife both had well-paying jobs and he didn't need to be breaking into homes and stealing things. He just liked to. The police were a bit weirded out by the man's demeanor and they decided to ask him if he's ever committed any assaults because in the neighborhood there had been a number of assaults that were being reported by women saying that a young, thin black man had jumped them and threatened them with weapons. And at times the women had been sexually assaulted. And the man just, like, calmly said, yeah, I guess I did do that. I guess I did do that. What? So, the police were a little bit worried that he was just gonna confess to whatever. I mean, like, yeah, I've been breaking into homes, I've been assaulting women. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess that was me. They brought up some unrelated, they knew these cases were unrelated to the assaults of um, taxi drivers who'd been being held up in the area. And they had, like, sketches of the man who looked nothing like this man. They were like, you did these taxi holdups too, didn't you? And he's like, no, that wasn't me. So he was telling the truth. So like, he's okay. just very nonchalant. They brought up some really intense sexual murders that had happened in Manhattan a few weeks before. And he was like, no, I didn't do those either. The women who had been assaulted were brought in and shown the man. And they identified him as the one who had attacked them. The detective noticed some cuts on the man's hands, and they said, You got those from stabbing Kitty Genovese, didn't you? And the man smiled slowly and said, Okay, I killed her. What the fuck is up with this dude? So Winston Mosley was 29 years old. He was in his second marriage. He had two sons with his first wife, but those boys didn't live with him, but he did pay child support and seemed to, like, be helping out with them. Okay, but thank God he didn't live with th- they didn't live with him. Oh, well. The first marriage had failed because they were very young when she got pregnant and she wasn't ready to be a mom. They weren't compatible. She had affairs. She thought he was boring and dull. He was really into ants. Just like had ant farms? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Weird. Uh, Winston at one point, though, got mad about her affairs and held her at gunpoint. And she was able to get the gun from him and then she held him at gunpoint. She should have shot him. Um, and it wasn't a good relationship. But Winston had gotten remarried to a woman named Betty, who he said was incredibly gentle and kind and loving, and that they had an amazing relationship, according to her. They had one son together, and they took in one of her cousin's young children to raise as well, and Betty said that Winston was an amazing and patient father. That he was very quiet, he was very relaxed, but he was always lovely to the kids and always lovely to her. Winston had a steady, well-paying job, and Betty worked as a nurse. I don't remember exactly what Winston's job is. It's, like, kind of at a factory, but not doing factory work. It's, like, administrative, like, some technological type thing. Okay. Winston's mother, Fanny, lived with them from time to time, as she had never been a particularly stable woman. She was pregnant with Winston when she met Alfonso Mosley, and Alfonso and Fanny got married, and he raised Winston as his own son. That's nice of Alfonso. But Fanny also had problems with infidelity and would often take off for months at a time with other men. Alfonso installed a lock on one of the rooms in the apartment and would lock Winston in there because he said he would come home and Winston would be alone after Fanny took off to, like, hook up with people. 
And so in a twisted way, he was trying to keep the kids safe so the kid couldn't get out of the apartment. Yeah, but... Because he's like, I have to go to work. I'm trying to leave my kid with my wife, but my wife takes off and then my kid could get out. Which isn't... It's not the uh, correct way to solve the problem. No. Hire a babysitter. (laughs) But... And also factoring in that these were... um, That Winston, Fanny, and Alfonso were all black in the 60s. Oh. And so you're not like... You're not wealthy. Yeah. You're in a position where it's hard. So Winston was a quiet and shy kid who got super into ants. In the year or two before Kitty's death, Alfonso had found out that Fanny was cheating on him again and was stalking her, saying he was going to kill her. Winston talked his dad out of it and told him that Fanny was never going to stay with him or any man. That's just who she was. And it's not known if he was serious or just trying to get his dad to hand over the gun he had, but he told his dad to give him the gun and let Winston shoot her himself. Either way, his dad didn't give him the gun, but it got calmed down enough and got over it, I guess. But this family was insanely dysfunctional. Yeah. So the police were very excited to have a man who was confessing to the murder of Kitty, but they were still hesitant to believe that he was the one to actually do the killings. He willingly went with police to show them where he had disposed of evidence, such as Kitty's wallet in the parking lot of his work, along with um, accidentally dropping the business card to his father's shop. So when they found her wallet, like... The business card for his dad's shop is right there. The police took Winston to the shop and had him also identify which of the TVs and other merchandise Winston had stolen, and the police arrested Alfonso because he was technically in possession of stolen goods, even though he wasn't aware that his son had been stealing things, which is sad. Winston and the police went back to the scene of Kitty's death, and he walked them through step-by-step what he had done that night, and he explained that on that night he had planned to escalate, and he knew that he didn't want to go out and just rape or assault, he wanted to commit a murder. The assaults that he had been committing so far were against black women, and tonight he felt he wanted to kill a white woman. I would like to acknowledge that it is known that black women were being assaulted, and they just couldn't catch the guy, but then a white woman got murdered, and they had their suspect within a week. I call racial bias. Supposedly, like, I mean, the timing worked out that they called about the home robbery, and then he um, confessed, but I, like, have to acknowledge, they like, ha- they, multiple <laughs> black women were being assaulted, and they're like, oh, shucks, and then Kitty got murdered, and they're like, oh, we got him, he's confessing. Anyway, he left his kids home alone with the five German shepherds he had. He felt the kids would be safe because the dogs would protect them, and he also couldn't imagine someone just breaking into the house to hurt his kids. Like, that seemed unimaginable to the man who was just, like, stalking and assaulting women for fun. Ready to plan a murder. He had been about to give up on finding a target that night when he saw Kitty, Kitty getting into her car outside of Ev's 11th hour. He said that when he started towards Kitty and she ran that she was fast, but he managed to catch up with her. He said that after people had started yelling out and he had fled, he waited in his car for a bit to see if the police were coming, but when no one came, he figured that no one would call police because he said no one ever does. They felt confident that they had their killer. Kitty's wallet was exactly where he said it was, and Winston told them about having taken one of the um, false pads that Kitty wore in her bra, and this detail had been kept quiet and not reported on. The police asked him if he had committed any other murders, and he told them that two and a half weeks earlier, he had shot 24-year-old Annie Mae Johnson. Now the detectives were fucking pissed. 
because the medical examiner's report stated that Annie Mae Johnson had died from stab wounds, not gunshot wounds. So was there a gunshot wound? And they're wondering if he's telling the truth about Kitty after all, or maybe he's just been lucky with some details, and so they tore into him telling he was telling he was full of shit and lying to them. Because they're like, we know that she died from stabbings. stabbings, but now, like, were you lying to us about Kitty? Like, now there's, can we trust anything he said? Winston was very relaxed. He smiled at them and just simply stated, no, I shot her. And he described having seen her around 3 a.m. heading home. He followed her to her front door and shot her in the stomach. She had told him that no one was inside the house, but when he went in, he found a handful of people sleeping upstairs. He went back outside and shot her repeatedly. As she lay dead in the snow, he removed her clothes and planned to rape her. But it was too cold for him, so he brought her body back into her home with the other people sleeping upstairs, and he raped her and then set the room on fire. He knew the details of this crime that also hadn't been reported in the news, and paperwork was started to have Annie Mae Johnson exhumed so that her body could be re-examined. So, how do you confuse stab wounds with gunshot wounds? Did he, did he stab her after the gunshot? I'll, I'll get to it, I promise. Okay. So, Winston Mosley wasn't done. He told detectives that he had also stabbed a 15-year-old girl to death in her bed the summer before. He had been in the process of burglarizing the home in the middle of the night when he found her sleeping in her bed and decided to stab her to death with scissors from the house. The police were also pretty upset about this confession because 18-year-old Alvin Mitchell was set to be tried for this murder after he had confessed to it. However, Alvin said he only confessed after being beaten and told that he had blacked out during the assault, and that's why he didn't remember killing Barbara, because it was Barbara Kralik who got murdered. And that if he confessed, he would only spend two years in a mental hospital before going free. So this was a teenage kid who was beaten and then told that if he confessed that he blacked out, that he would just spend two years in a mental hospital. What a so great investigation. What the fuck? So Winston was charged with Kitty's murder on March 19th, 1964, and his wife was in complete shock. <laughs> Annie Mae Johnson was exhumed, and in an autopsy done by a completely different medical examiner, it was discovered that she had indeed been shot, and bullet fragments were even removed from her body that had been completely missed. Was that, like, a new freaking... It like... was a small caliber gun, <sighs> so the first medical examiner just thought that she'd been like stabbed with an ice pick okay well the medical examiner sucked sir there's bullets in this person right how did you miss that was it his first year but it's new york city there's a bigger like much higher crime rate and she was a black woman so they didn't really yeah it's 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 not fair it's not fair so Winston Mosley went to trial for the murder of Kitty Genovese that summer of 1964. He was being represented by Sidney Sparrow, the same lawyer who had briefly represented Kitty when she got into gambling trouble. <laughs> Sidney had been assigned to take on Winston Mosley's case. He said that when he saw it in the news, he had like a weird gut feeling that he was going to be the one assigned to Winston Mosley. They didn't argue whether or not Winston had done it, but they did argue on whether or not Winston was sane. Sparrow said that the best he was hoping for was to keep Mosley from being sentenced to death. Which he technically failed because Winston was found guilty and was sentenced to death for the murder of Kenny Genovese. Okay, but I don't feel like but he would feel guilty about But in 1967, the Court of Appeals changed his sentence to life in prison on the grounds that the judge hadn't allowed his lawyer to enter in evidence of Winston's mental instability during the trial. <laughs> and the trial wasn't, there really wasn't much in the trial. It was just talking about, like, Winston. 
Yeah. Because they were acknowledging that he killed Kitty. They were just arguing on whether or not he was sane, so they went a lot into, like, how his parents argued and how his first wife cheated on him and how he wasn't a stable person. You can have a dysfunctional family and you can be mentally unstable and not kill people. None of Kitty's family came to the trial. They said that nothing would really change for them. I think they for sure experienced a lot of shock because they didn't expect in a three-month period to have their daughter brutally murdered, then her killer caught and sentenced. And justice happened quickly, but it's just like they didn't have time to process it. No. So it doesn't appear that Mosley was ever charged for the murder of Annie Mae Johnson, but as we learned in the case of the John Norman Collins, there could be a few reasons for that. One being the state doesn't want to cover the costs of another trial, or two because if he gets released for Kitty's murder, then he could be charged with Annie's. During Alvin Mitchell's first trial for the murder of Barbara Kralik, who Winston confessed to killing, the jury was hung, and then during the second trial... Um, the jury found Alvin Mitchell guilty of manslaughter for Barbara Kralik's murder. Wow. Wait, did that kid go free? No, he was, he was sentenced. He was found guilty. He was found guilty. I'm Um, sorry, I am like... I think Winston Mosley committed this murder and Alvin just was the one to pay for it. But he, but it was like coercion. Yeah, but it's the 60s and they don't give a shit. So, and you would think that this is the end of Winston Mosley... But it's not. (laughs) Does he kill people in prison? No. In March of 1968, four years after the murder, uh, Winston was taken to a hospital in Buffalo, New York, because he had inserted a soda can into his butthole. Ouch. And done some damage that was going to need minor surgery to correct. And he did this on March 13th, exactly four years to the day after killing Kitty. And on the 19th of March, he was being released and escorted back to the vehicle by a single guard. They were going to be taking him back to Attica prison. And Winston was not handcuffed or shackled in any way. I'm guessing that they thought if he had, like, stitches in his butthole that he would try to be delicate with that. But, like, the man shoved a soda can up in there to fuck himself up in the first place, so I don't think he's going to care about the stitches. Winston punched the guard in the face, grabbed his gun, and fled. Winston was loose and armed in Buffalo, New York. For how long? On the 20th of March, a cleaning service company received a call from a man who said he was Matthew Kalaga. He wanted a cleaning woman to be sent to a home in Buffalo where the cleaning company had been before. The home belonged to an old woman who had moved out to live with her daughter and son-in-law, Matthew Kalaga, who lived not too far away. The company did a follow-up call to Janet Kalaga to make sure that the cleaning was up to their satisfaction, and Janet was like, what cleaning? Because neither she nor Matthew had made the call. So Janet called neighbors of her mother's house to be like, is there anything weird going on at the house? Because supposedly somebody called some people there to clean. And the neighbors were like, no, we haven't seen anything. We noticed a cleaning woman come in and then leave hours later. Okay, so she left. But the Kalagas were like, what the fuck? And then later that night, Janet got a call from a woman who wouldn't identify herself. But she told Janet to stay away from her mother's house for the next few days, to not go near it. So Janet and Matthew are pretty concerned now, and they decided to go check out the house the next morning. Matthew went in holding a crowbar, but he was met with a gun being held by Winston Mosley. Winston tied up the couple and separated them. He sexually assaulted Janet and then took Matthew's clothes in their car and fled. They obviously called police and identified him as Winston Mosley because they'd seen pictures of him on the news. The police commissioner, who was in his 60s, arrived on the scene and was going through yards and garages and basements determined to find Mosley. 
he was like muttering to himself as he's like this old man climbing through yards being like i'm gonna get him good winston planned to escape to pittsburgh but he didn't know buffalo very well because he'd spent most of his time there in prison or in the hospital so he got turned around and ended up pulling into a random neighborhood. <laughs> he ditched the car and walked up to an apartment building and knocked on the door of Mary Patmos. Mary answered the door and Mosley had his gun drawn pointed at her and he entered the apartment and kept her and her friend Gladys. I don't remember Gladys's last name, but he kept them hostage. They were in the middle of having like coffee breakfast. So he sat down at the table with them and had coffee and like ate and talked to them about religion and philosophy and just chatted with them. But it wasn't lovely because he's still holding them at gunpoint the whole time. And Mary is holding her infant daughter on her lap. Yeah. So Mary went and laid her baby down in the other room and she kind of was like hoping like, okay, if he does shoot and she's in the other room, she won't get hit. Gladys told Mosley that she was supposed to be picking up her kids from daycare soon and if she didn't arrive people would come looking for her there and it would draw a lot of attention so Mosley decided to give Gladys a certain amount of time to get to the kids and bring them back or he said he would kill Mary and the baby oh my god Gladys left and called her husband who called the FBI and alerted them to what was going on all sorts of agents and officers rushed to the perimeter of the neighborhood but they didn't want to tip off Mosley that they were there because they don't want him yeah one FBI agent, Agent Neil Welch, apparently saw a diaper truck nearby, which, what the fuck is a diaper truck, side note? Oh, um, yeah, I know what this is. I, I know a thing, I know a thing. Okay, so diaper trucks, they would have these, like, reusable, not reusable, but they would take the disposable, um, diapers for you, and then they would give you more diapers. My grandpa had it, this service with, uh, grandma when they lived in New York for a minute. Yeah, so diaper trucks. Yeah, there there was diaper trucks. It was I thought that I think that's pretty cool, but uh, <laughs> also a, a dirty job. <laughs> yeah. So he took the diaper truck and the delivery man's uniform, so that he could get closer to the scene and still be out in the open without drawing attention. And other officers were quietly surrounding the apartment and like getting other people out of the building. Gladys, under the directions of the agents, pulled back into a parking spot. Mosley was looking out the window. She held up the keys to show him the keys, and she set them down on the hood of the car, being like, here you go, take my car. And she started to slowly walk away because the agents didn't want her going back into the house because nobody's going to be like, let's send a hostage back in. Right. Mosley grabbed the baby and held the gun to the baby's head and gestured for Gladys to come back. And so Gladys started sobbing and, like, walking back to the house. But as she's, like, walking down the path in kind of, like, a secluded point, like, some agents grabbed her because they're like, you, you can't go back in the house. Neil Welch decided to call the apartment and convince Mosley to let just him into the apartment. And Mosley did. He let Neil Welch in. Neil Welch went in. Mary took her baby into another room. And while the two men talked, she fled out of a window with her baby. Good. So, Neil and Winston sat across from each other for a while, just talking. They talked about Mosley's life and his experiences so far in prison, and he talked about how different his life would have been had he gotten a degree, which, sir, a degree wouldn't have helped you. This no. This is who you are. A sick, demented asshole. You, you are not doing this because you're uneducated or you're poor. You're doing this because you want to. You're getting pleasure out of this. Ugh. Eventually, if they're talking, uh, Winston has his gun on Neil, and Neil has a gun in his pocket aimed at Winston. <laughs> um, the phone rang, and the pair tried to ignore it at first, but Neil was like, hey, I should be the one to answer this because they're going to want to make sure that I'm okay. They're not going to leave us alone. Like, I'm just going to grab this, let them know I'm okay, whatever. Right. So Neil answers it, and it's a news reporter asking how long it's going to be because they had a deadline to make. 
Are you kidding? That's right. This whole story is like, freaking wild. Wait, can you please be patient? And he's like, but my deadline. So Welch turned to Mosley and was like, okay, everyone's ready for this to be over. Let's get out of here. And Mosley was like, yeah, okay, here. And hands the gun over and they walk out of the apartment. Yeah. What? And so Winston went back to Attica. The cleaning lady who had been called to the house that Winston was initially hiding in was interviewed, and she said that she had been held hostage all day and sexually assaulted by him. He threatened to murder her and her children if she tried to go to the police, so she decided not to and instead placed the call to Janet Kulaga to warn her to stay away from the house. And here I thought she was okay. The district attorney of Erie County wanted to press charges against the cleaning lady. And a senior assistant attorney named Barbara Sins was amazing, and she refused to file charges against the cleaning woman, making public statements that this woman was also a victim. Yeah, because how, why were they... She completely defied her boss and was like, oh, no, no, we're not going to press charges against the uh, rape victim. Yeah. Who had her children's lives threatened. What the fuck kind of logic was from the boss There's in the first place? There's some weird shit where everybody seems to be very gung-ho to place blame on people other than Winston Mosley. I'm thoroughly disgusted. So through a prison program, Winston earned a college degree in sociology in 1977, and one of the college administrators who oversaw the prison program made a bunch of public statements about how intelligent and amazing Mosley was, and a lot of people complained because the man is a disgusting murderer, and because many saw this college program as a waste of money, which I can understand. There are some prisoners who I don't think should have college provided for them, whereas many, many others would benefit greatly from it. Winston's not one of those. No, I mean, I don't, no, no. I mean, you're getting life, you're, you have a life sentence, and honestly, I think Winston deserved freaking. Winston Mosley was never going to get out and be a productive member of society. That no. Was, he was never going to be rehabilitated. Education programs are for those who can be rehabilitated, who can be, like, it projected not what is it put into the community and like have a good life because they made mistakes like drug charges and non-violent criminal charges not murder people, charges people who get off on sexual murders are the least likely to be rehabilitated it is like it doesn't happen and that's and this is why i believe in the death penalty <laughs> So, Winston started to make claims um, near the end of his sentence that Kitty had called him a racial slur, and that's why he attacked her. Whatever. This had never been brought up before, and he only said these things while trying to either appeal the case or get parole. Kitty never called him anything. He stalked her and murdered her in cold blood. Yup. <laughs> Winston spoke about how different he is now, and how he shouldn't be punished for crimes he committed before, because he's grown so much, and he's so intelligent. And is he dead? Mother, had made similar comments. The prison program people made similar comments, too, about how it's sad that such an intelligent man's life was being thrown away for essentially, they didn't say this specifically, but essentially mistakes that he had made. They're not mistakes. Killing um, and sexually assaulting people thing, are not mistakes. Yeah, like, if Winston was so smart and down-to-earth and had changed so much, maybe he would understand the weight of his crimes and accept that even though he's different, he should still carry out the sentence for what he did. Like, awesome, you've changed, have you? Well, the fact that you think that you should just be let out and that you think you served enough time for all those murders and rapes and breaking out and holding a gun to the head of a fucking baby, but you got a degree in sociology, so now you think you should get another chance. That tells me you haven't changed at all, sir. No. You're exactly the same piece of shit. It's so, so demented, so... Like, you had multiple chances. Fuck you. Yeah, absolutely. 
He was denied parole 18 times. Good. Because anyone with a brain could see that he was the same garbage human. He was denied parole in 2011 when he was an old-ass man because he was still considered a danger to society. Winston died in prison in 2016. Good. After the death of Kitty, New York City put into motion the change of streamlining how people contact the police. Before Kitty's death, you could call the number for each individual precinct or department, or you could call the operator and be transferred um, to the police, and 911 came into existence to make it easier. Yay! 911. 911 <laughs> came Never into existence. Never <laughs> forget. And Kitty's murder is still talked about from a sociological and psychological standpoint, and Kitty's only role is to be the fleeing silhouette of a damsel in distress, but her siblings still remember their outgoing, intelligent, independent, silly, brave, amazing older sister who loved people and made them each feel seen. Marianne Zolanko eventually pulled herself out of her depression that she was going through. She spent the, like, six months after Kitty's death just drinking, and she eventually just kind of said, I can't do, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Like, I need to do something. Her dog, Andrew, ran away that year like around christmas time and she said she thinks that andrew was like running off to go find kitty but marianne went back to school she became a professor she's spoken a few times about kitty's life and death Um, marianne married her partner and seems to have been able to live a fairly happy life but she and everybody who knew kitty was definitely haunted by kitty's death yeah, I'm so glad that Marianne found happiness. I'm so, I feel so bad about Andrew. I just, like, poor Kitty. Like, she, no no woman deserves that treatment. It's just 38 people. Yeah. You at one point asked me a question, and I said, don't worry, I'm going to get to that. Yeah. And I don't know if I did. Oh, um, yeah, you did. I what the question was. I, you did get to it. I can't remember what the question was either, because there's so much <laughs> that went on, but you did answer it. I and try I to make sure that if I'm going to, like, um, I think it was whether she'd been stabbed or something. Yeah, yeah, the, the gun, yep, the I gun I tried to, like, and the medical examiner. give little leads and then come back to it to, like, have the story make sense, and then sometimes I'm like, shit, did I go back to that? <laughs> back to that i'm just there is so much information in this case i hate winston i hate winston i hate him oh my gosh i mean and i hate carl and also i'm noticing a theme of really shitty men in this whole (laughs) entire story yeah um i'm so happy about the detectives not like outing marianne and not making things worse but what kind of fucking job is like oh yeah your roommate got murdered brutally well you gotta come in today sorry you're emotionally damaged but um you want to get paid or not and also, uh, the cleaning lady, too. Yeah. Just, just, just yep, yeah, we're going to charge her. You know, Barbara Sims, the assistant direct uh, attorney, district attorney, who was like, no, we're not pressing charges. Did amazing. There were, there are a lot of people in this situation. You're like, good for you. Like, kudos. Like, I'm very happy. I, what about, like, um, Katie's mom? You know how she had to be sedated? Yeah. Sedated. Did she... Did she do better? Like, do I don't know? I don't know about that. I had read something that the family tried really, really hard to keep the details of Kitty's death from their the mom, mom. But after their mom's death, they found, like, newspaper clippings that their mom had. Oh. Um, so their mom knew everything that happened to her daughter. I couldn't imagine. Yeah. But, damn. So, that was... 
another end to another dead endings. Thank you for listening. See ya.